0: Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. Before we jump into today's content, I just I want to say a big thank you to everyone who participated in our online email-based workshop, The Safest Place, Domestic Abuse and the Church. You know, we had over a thousand people uh, participate in that workshop, and it was such a blessing for us to see individuals willing and excited to learn about domestic abuse from a biblical perspective. And then also the numbers of folks who shared this with their pastor, ministry leaders, church leaders. It was really encouraging, and I just want to give a big thank you to everyone who participated in that workshop. As you may know, if you've been following along with the continued emails and dialogue, that workshop, that four-part series will be uh, placed over in the PeaceWorks University private membership area uh, until, um, until we relaunch it again so it will not be available for a while. And um, also with that, I want to thank the 40 plus individuals who joined PeaceWorks University throughout that uh, series. We're really looking forward to getting to know you, to getting to know you better, to working with you, and to helping you grow in your ministry response. We just recently closed the doors to PeaceWorks University. At least for a season, we'll be opening back up, I think, in the spring of 2020. This just gives us a time to retool the site, to focus in on our existing members, and to take a breath uh, from all the things that that we've been doing. One last thank you. Uh, At the time of this recording, I've just returned from Asheville, North Carolina, where I had a chance to present at an event for Restoration Counseling Center. The folks at Restoration put on a great event at Arden Presbyterian Church, and uh, I was able to present uh, several times on Friday night and Saturday morning, and it was a real blessing to be with the folks there at Restoration and uh, hopeful uh, that that was the first steps in a growing uh, response within the church in that region. I know there were folks from three different states, four if you count myself, but three different states at least that I met, uh, at that event. And so that was a really exciting and uh, great time. And so thank you to the folks at Restoration. Now, let's get on uh, to today's content. So one of the questions I received quite a bit is, and it's usually based on a lot of confusion, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to add much clarity to it today. I'm going to try, uh, but it is a tricky issue. And it, it really in many ways, boils down to where we start. Like, as you understand the world, people, relationships, where is your starting point? For many in this work, uh, the question of can people change start with an assumption of, uh, especially when it comes to men who have been abusive, starts with an assumption that abusive men, men who have made the choice to use power over to control their partner cannot experience change. Uh, it usually is accompanied by uh, a litany of labels and diagnoses or um, pseudo-diagnoses responding a condition, uh, corresponding to a condition that they have. When I teach occasionally, I will talk about some of the uh, responses from the church uh, that are incomplete. So many of you have heard me go through this. So uh, some of the responses from the church to domestic abuse that are incomplete are, for instance, that it's a criminal justice problem. And while domestic abuse can be criminal, not all domestic abuse is criminal. And not all responses from the criminal justice system are severe or fair or just. And so it's naive to view domestic abuse as only a criminal justice or legal problem. This is a mistake that many uh, ministries make when they just release statements or have lawyers write position papers uh, rather than thinking through the dynamics and the impact of the problem. Second, as you've probably heard, is some would say that this is an anger problem and we need to therefore address the abusers anger and anger cues. I would say that that's incomplete as well. Anger is rarely A motivator um, in cases of domestic abuse is far more likely a tactic. There are many men who are dead set on using power and control that when confronted in regards to their aggressive or sinful anger, they will merely resort to what we would call polite abuse or more respectable sins, things that are less demonstrative. Uh, Anger in and of itself is not a cause. It's more than likely a, a tactic or a tool. Next is, we would say, uh, it's a marriage problem. Again, um, because it occurs in the context of marriage, the church has tried to throw marriage-focused solutions at domestic abuse in the hopes that they would see reconciliation or restoration. But, of course, this is not a marriage problem. It is one person using power to control another. Uh, Fourth is that it's the victim's problem very common strategy within the church has been to blame the victim. If she would stop lighting matches, he wouldn't explode. If she wouldn't push his buttons, he wouldn't react. That there's somehow a provocation to the sin of abuse. And of course, this is not true. Individuals are responsible for their own behavior. You know, a fifth response I've been hearing a lot lately from within the church is that abuse is a pathological problem. That either genetically or um, environmentally or trauma-informed um, reasoning that this individual is has either an antisocial or sociopathic diagnosis, or more commonly, a narcissistic personality. Now, I'm not going to spend time, <laughs> excuse me, denying. The observations. In fact, I think when you when you interact with labels um, that that are from like the, say the DSM, not all of them, but most of them, especially in the personality disorder category, you're dealing with symptomology. It's observational, and so there is a category called narcissistic personality disorder, and within that category, there's a lot of symptoms that. Uh, professionals in the mental health world are looking for to arrive at that diagnosis. Now, not not many of the men I work with are actually receiving that diagnosis. The, the vast majority of people that are being you being called that label have not received that diagnosis. It is um, an individual is assuming that they're placing that upon them, and um, I understand that. So the the symptomology would lead one to believe that this is true. However, the dilemma is this. First, is that there's a notion that if an individual actually does receive this diagnosis, whether by a professional or from an outsider, a lay person, that therefore this is what they have. That this is somehow genetic uh, or um, inherited or is part of their uh, innate personality and therefore they cannot change. That narcissists are beyond change. Um, which I think is problematic because the diagnosis is based on symptoms, not upon um, hard science, you know, so to speak. The other problem is the vast majority of the individuals given this label are given by a layperson, um, someone affected by their behavior. And so the label carries with it the same stigma of hard-heartedness, seared conscience, things that we might use from a biblical perspective, Um, but they have not received this professionally. And I just want to push back on it a little bit. I understand um, why someone would be called this, but what comes with that is often the, well, then this person is irreparable. I heard Ellen Pence many years ago, and this is somebody who I respect um, when she was still with us um, working for the Duluth Abuse Intervention Project, she made the distinction that there is a difference between living with a batterer, an abuser, and living with someone who's a jerk. Um, but at the same time, even though she made that distinction, she also understood that even the batterer had with within their world opportunities to change, to shift, to make adjustments. And that's something that we hold true within the Christian world. So somebody who's given a label that, that says, okay, well, then you cannot change, um, is somewhat troubling to me, is all I'm getting at. Now, does that mean that we continue to put ourselves in harm's way to somebody based upon the potentiality of change? Well, of course not. Paul tells Titus to warn a divisive person two times and then have nothing to do with them. He also, in writing to Timothy, gives a laundry list of uh, character issues uh, in, what is it, 2 Timothy 3, I believe, and tells Timothy to have nothing to do with these people. There is a point in time, much swifter and, and earlier than what I think the church has been doing, in which we may and should, and it would be prudent, to separate ourselves from individuals who dis- display these characteristics. I believe the church has gotten, in many ways, caught in the trap of focusing on the potential of repentance and forgiveness as opposed to the biblical principles of repentance and forgiveness. Again, the church has focused in on the potential, the potentiality of repentance and forgiveness and rather than the principles of biblical repentance and forgiveness. And so we drag this process out in the hope that someone will repent rather than following the biblical principles of calling others to repentance. So this is one of the reasons why um, I believe biblical counseling can be an effective response to domestic abuse, especially those of us who work with perpetrators. Our emphasis on the biblical principles, uh, I think, benefit us as we move into counseling and confrontation. If we're really to, really willing to hold our ground, this process should not take years trying to discern and decipher, but it should rather be swift as we're moving to a point of decision. Principles such as putting off and putting on also help us in the process of understanding progressive sanctification and transformation. If a man who's been abusive uh, claims to be a believer, then it's required of us within the church to call him to repentance, holding him accountable uh, to completely abandon the wickedness, and uh, to embrace new and better alternatives. Simply put, when we're striving to promote change, we must not only call the individual to cease the destructive behavior, but to replace it with God-honoring behavior. The end result of this confrontation should produce either evidence, such as fruit, of repentance, or confirm the unbelief. The goal in a confrontation like this is not to simply dismiss the person as genetically, biologically, or culturally uh, unsalvageable, nor is it to continue to drag the process on with some theoretical theology that says he has the potential for change. There is a middle ground that the Bible calls us to, which is to confront and call the perpetrator to repentance, observe whether or not the repentance is genuine, and act accordingly. Getting to a point of either initial repentance or remained obstinance helps us in moving forward. This is what I believe Paul references in Galatians 6 when he says God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. In confrontational ministry, we will uncover Uh, the roots of either the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 or the fruit of the Spirit will manifest according to Galatians 5. That's why it's important that we maintain um, a standard that is above and beyond symptomology, that is rooted in Scripture. And I do believe if we remain faithful to Biblical principles, then we will hold people accountable we will protect victims, and we will be swift in our response. For many of us, um, our delayed responses have a lot more to do with the insufficiency of the counselor rather than the sufficiency of the scripture. You know, this reminds me of um, one evening when I was teaching the principles of root and fruit uh, to a group of guys. This group had all been identified as abusers. And one participant interrupted me angrily. He, he asked the question, you know, Chris, are you trying to say that I'm a bad guy or something? Now I had not even been speaking to this guy. I had been speaking to a group and in that process, his voice grew louder. He was defensive in his tone and he was addressing what he considered to be a personal attack. He went on to say, you said this behavior comes from an evil heart. Are you saying my heart is evil? Obviously, something I had said had triggered this reaction. It reminds me of something my high school basketball coach used to say when disciplining the team. He said, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. A simple presentation on the centrality of the heart and the nature of pride had struck this man, and his yelp was a clear indication that I needed to stop and dig deeper. Even though he had been in our group for several weeks, he had remained uh, resistant insisting he had done nothing wrong and yet in this discussion of the heart he was clearly connecting his bad behavior uh, to the conversation I was having. You said this behavior comes from an evil heart. Are you saying my heart is evil? This was the first uh, acknowledgement of any type of wicked or abusive behavior. This conversation blossomed into collecting the data that we needed to hold him accountable. It wasn't until he finally admitted that he had been doing many of the things we had been accusing him of that we could finally look at him and say, now what are you going to do with this reality? This is what you've done. Will you repent, put in the hard work to see change and transformation, or will you double down and continue to be this person? It's at that point that we have... um, an opportunity to see change. And the clock is ticking. If he remains obstinate, continues to rebel, then as a church we have the obligation and the freedom to follow Paul's instructions to Titus, to follow Paul's instructions to Timothy, to have nothing to do with the individual. Is that what I'm after? Is that what I want? Certainly not. That's not my goal. My goal is to see repentance. But I know full well that not everyone will repent. People have hard hearts, seared consciences. People are stubborn. People are prideful. But until we properly confront, we will not see um, an end. We will continue, as I said, to focus on the potentiality of repentance and forgiveness rather than the biblical principles. We can encourage men who have used violence and abuse Uh, to participate in a variety of God-honoring alternatives. But uh, one I wanted to highlight was the necessity for gentleness. I've encountered many men who cringe at the thought of having gentle responses. They see it as weak, um, and yet uh, the Scripture encourages us to be men who are gentle. Um, If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to be gentle, such as Matthew 11, which says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or as a result of the Spirit's work, right? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Or as a requirement for leadership, this is one that has been striking to me lately as we've seen church leaders um, come under discipline for domestic abuse and elder boards and church boards making ministry um, restoration part of the process when violence is a disqualifier. Not given to drunkenness, Paul says to Timothy. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Uh, Titus 3, Paul says, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, always gentle toward everyone. We can see a movement from violence to gentleness. If that movement doesn't take place, then we haven't seen repentance. If that movement does take place, then we can celebrate uh, what we're seeing. Let me give you maybe one more example. From ridicule to encouragement, this would be something you would find in uh, the book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse. Words are powerful, and the venom of domestic abuse, verbal abuse, seeps into the spirit of the victim. That's a quote that you'll hear often from the book, This behavior is not consistent with the person of Christ or the people he has called us to be. Scripture admonishes us to speak words of truth and life to those we communicate with as a means of building others up. Just like Ephesians 4.29-30 says, not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth, but only what's good for building others up. The result is the grieving of the Holy Spirit. When we tear others down, we grieve the Holy Spirit within them. It's also called as evidence of our holiness. Jesus said in Matthew 15, what comes out of our mouth proceeds from the heart. That's what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. And then of course, uh, as a means of practicing wisdom in Colossians chapter 4. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, Paul says, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each person. You see, as we're identifying the symptoms, the behavior, it's important that we connect it to the biblical alternative and that we run that through the construct of sanctification, addressing the heart, the motives, the desires, and seeing true repentance played out. If that true repentance doesn't play out, then we have a tremendous amount of freedom in how we, as the church, respond. I think I'll repeat it one last time because, to me, it's been the one statement that has stuck out to me since we started this conversation today. We must be committed to the biblical principles of forgiveness and repentance, not simply the potential of repentance and forgiveness. Well, guys, I hope this has Uh, made some sense, sparked some thought, and I'd love to continue the conversation. Uh, Yeah, thank you again for joining us. The PeaceWorks podcast is only made possible because of listeners like you. It is amazing to me how many folks are engaged with this content week after week, and we are thrilled to serve you. I know that conversations like this can get uh, murky, and we haven't been able to cover everything today, but hopefully we'll be able to add some layers Uh, in the future. Uh, Again, you are so appreciated. And until we meet again, God bless.